This journey started long before. A path of hope mapped out from the very beginning. Movement built on a legacy of prayer and sacrifice. This is not the easy way. It requires hard things. It will change us. It demands our attention. It is a journey of rescue to be passed on from one generation to the next. And we are here to take up the baton, to embrace our leg of the journey, to go not just for ourselves, but for the generations to come. discouraged with what's going on in the world today and I do see in the future that probably our children and our children's children will be forced to really take a stand for our wonderful Lord. I believe God will even raise up and strengthen uh, the younger generation so that they will continue to be able to reach our community or wherever they're placed, because that's his purpose, to continue that. The Lord is continuing <laughs> through his word uh, to minister to young and old, maybe old in their memories, but with young, it's their future and their dreams that he addresses through all of that as well. We're doing the 30-30 thing, so we're trying to get more churches and so I feel like God's like bringing more people into this church so that we like need to expand because he's he's trying to tell us like hey you guys you we've got to go we've got to start getting into this because you cannot stop so if we keep going once they have that seed planted in their head then it sprouts and it grows into a relationship with God it seems like we we tend to put a plan in place and then he changes it drastically <laughs> But uh, just in the time it's been around, it's, it's grown rapidly and it continues to do that, making a bigger impact on our community that's around here. And so I think that as long as we continue to draw people in and, and share the truth with them, share the gospel with them, though I may not know specifically what it looks like in terms of logistics, I know that God has a plan. And as long as we continue to trust in that, no matter what our ministry shapes into if he's centered in it then i trust that it's going to be it's going to be a great outreach and it's going to continue to grow and reach people i think a huge way that god mobilizes his church is through missions local missions are just as important if not sometimes more important than global missions because we're god's church and we need to be the church here as much as we are the church there and so sharing the gospel happens like in your own backyard you could share the gospel with your neighbors and so i think the way that god would mobilize this church the most is if everyone in the church was like dedicated to sharing the gospel and to the Great Commission to go and tell everyone and make disciples and tell people about Jesus and I don't know, pray, give and go is what we always say. Pray for those who are out, our missionaries and give to like our actual local missions that like we have that we're doing and go just in your own life. If you see a need, fill it. If you see a person that needs Jesus or needs to talk to someone, you can be that person. It doesn't have to be someone else. You don't need to be really great at talking in order to talk to someone about Jesus. You can just be yourself. And if you're genuine, people can tell. And that is like what makes the biggest impact. Genuine kindness. 
It's important that every generation is sharing the message of Jesus because the cycle can't just stop with the adults. If the adults someday are just the only ones sharing Jesus and the teenagers aren't investing or the young adults aren't investing in the teenagers, the teenagers aren't investing in the kids, then someday the adults are gonna be old people and then no one will be investing anymore. And so I think one of the most important lessons that we can teach when we're investing is that they can be investing too. It doesn't stop with us. It needs to continue on. We need to invest in the next generation and we need to let them know that it's their job and they can do it too, that they can do what we're doing. They can keep the flow going. I see um, the spirit just like truly exploding this community as we are truly doing the work of the Lord. I thank God for the leadership and the vision that has been cast. I think it certainly stirs up people's um, curiosity. And I see the Lord just, as we let the spirit move, He's gonna do what he does, so get ready. I, I just kinda, in my mind, I see like, whoa, like a building isn't gonna be enough. You know, this childcare isn't enough. You know what I mean? This, this, a place is not enough because he wants to live in our hearts. And so we need a bigger place for him to dwell, not just space. My name is John. My name is Eileen Mills. My name is Josh. My name is Haley. My name is Carter Adrianson. And here we go. 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 Here we go. Awesome. Well, good morning again, and uh, welcome to Grace Church Medina East Campus. I'm really thankful that all of you are here today at our 1115 service. For those of you who are in attendance here in our auditorium, thank you for being here, as well as those who are checking us out online. It's an honor and a privilege to be able to come into your TV screens, wherever you're at, and to be able to connect you with all of us and what's going on here. Uh, if you don't know me, just maybe allow me a second to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Seth. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here at the Medina East Campus, and I have the great privilege uh, this weekend of closing out a series, as Pastor Kevin talked about a few moments ago in announcements, uh, of closing out a series that we have been in for for the last two weeks, this is the third week, and uh, the series that we've been calling this is, as you can see on the graphics behind me, Here We Go, Here We Go. Uh, now, for many of you who've been around Medina East for a little bit, you will know that Here We Go is not merely the title of a series, that actually Here We Go is a phrase that kind of serves as a banner heading or a big idea behind a 10-year journey that we began as a campus about two years ago, back in February of 2020, before all hell broke loose in the world. So we began that about 10 years or two years ago, and it's a 10-year journey. And uh, essentially, here we go. Uh, we believe that in here we go, we want to communicate this, this reality, that we believe that Jesus himself has positioned us as a church. So that would be us here at Grace Church, the Medina East Campus, right here in Medina, Ohio that Jesus himself has positioned us as a church to be on the lookout and ultimately concerned for what we believe are four big commitments. That Jesus has us as a church wanting to double down and emphasize four key things that we believe, again, he wants us to live out on this 10-year journey and beyond. And so I thought it would be a good idea this morning for all of us to, if you've been around Medina East, you know what Here We Go is, to share these four commitments so that we can all be reminded of that heartbeat and what we believe Jesus has positioned us to do. But also, if you're newer to the Medina East campus or you're a guest here with us today, you can kind of get clued in on what we think we exist as a church for. 
And so here's what we've been saying in Here We Go. These are the four commitments. The four Here We Go commitments are, number one, kids and students. We wanna be committed to kids and students. In other words, we wanna pass the story of Jesus on to the next generation, on to the emerging generation. And so we believe that this is God's heart, and we believe it is super biblical, specifically in places like Psalm 78, where we are encouraged by the psalmist that we are to declare the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord to the next generation, to a generation yet unborn. And so we believe that that is the heart of God. We believe that's the mission of Jesus. And therefore, we wanna be committed to that as a church. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Tony walked us through this idea of being committed to kids and students. And he shared with us out of Judges chapter two, which is this tragic, almost terrible scene where there's an entire generation of God's people, the people of Israel in the Old Testament, who grew up not having heard any of the stories about what God did to liberate the people of Israel out of slavery to Egypt and bring them into a unique, one-of-a-kind relationship with himself. Guys, that there was an entire generation that did not or was not told that story, and they were not invested in, in that way. And the rest of the book of Judges is just the spiral out of control as a result of that one miss on behalf of the people of God. And so we said, we don't want to be the judge's generation. We want to be a Psalm 78 people. We want to declare the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord to the next generation. But we also said we wanted to be committed to campusing, campusing. And so this would be to say that we want to plant churches in communities where hope is hard to find. And so last week, Pastor Tony walked us through this idea of campusing and church planting as being sort of like the MO or the natural progression or the operational plan of the early church. We saw in the book of Acts, as Pastor Tony walked us through that a little bit last week, that the MO of the early church was to take a church that existed in a city, a group of people, that church would nominate or lay their hands on and commission a couple people, like say in the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul and some of his companions, they would send those guys to another city where there was not a church. Those guys would then declare the story of Jesus, articulate the hope of Jesus, and tell the story of the gospel. They would make disciples of Jesus, who would then in turn make disciples of Jesus. Those disciples of Jesus who made disciples of Jesus would then form groups that would make groups. And eventually, as Paul would leave after his labor was invested in that city, you would have a church of Jesus Christ established in a city where it wasn't before. And so we said we wanted to pick up that kind of pattern. We don't just want to be a church that's interested in Medina. We want to plant campuses in other communities where maybe the hope of Jesus isn't clear or that it's hard to find. And we also said we want to be committed to leadership development, so producing godly and biblically faithful people to spearhead the movement. And so you actually see this in the Apostle Paul's strategy in the book of Acts. When he goes and he plants a church, he doesn't just leave it without indigenous qualified leaders. He trains them up. He raises them up in order that they might oversee on Jesus' behalf the life of that congregation as they live out the lifestyle of Jesus in their city. And then finally, we said, so we want to do that, and we said we also want to be committed to outreach. And so this would be providing for the spread of the gospel through monetary material and also people or human resource, like human people support. And so uh, today, as we uh, finish out or close out our series, we are gonna be focusing on the last of these. We're gonna be talking today about outreach, about this idea of providing for the spread of the gospel through money, through material, and people support. And so as we begin this aspect of our conversation today, I thought it would be just a really good idea to take us all together by way of, again, reminder, or if this is new for you, I think it's helpful, uh, take us all together to our, very own here, to our very own Here We Go website, 
where we have a section on outreach that also includes a summary statement about why we are so convinced that outreach is supposed to be one of our commitments. And incidentally, before we move forward, uh, I did mention that we have our very own Here We Go website. We love this thing. It's really cool. And so that means if you want to know anything about anything with regard to Here We Go, or if you want to explore new and different ways, or yeah, just continue ways to get involved in Here We Go, you want to, after the service, don't get your phones out now, but after the service, we would love for you to head out to www.herewegomedina.com. I'll say that one more time, www.herewegomedina.com. But uh, anyway, so we're out here on the website, and let's just read, let me just read for you for a second, uh, what is our summary statement on outreach, and I'll put it up like this because it's a little hard to see when you've got the website graphic up here. So this is what we say. We say, we actively seek ministry partnerships. We work to maximize impact for God's kingdom through strategic partners. Grace Church cannot go it alone. And we will leverage the strengths of diverse organizations and churches to pursue the movement to which God has called us. We recognize that we exist not for ourselves, but for our community and the world. And at Medina East, it's our desire to come alongside these organizations to further propel the movement of the gospel. That's why, check this out, 10% of all dollars committed during the Here We Go Vision campaigns will go to strengthen our local, I'm sorry, our global and local partnerships and to advance the gospel worldwide. And so for starters, hopefully you can see as we read this again together, hopefully you can see that it is our passion and it is our heartbeat as a church of Jesus Christ planted here in Medina to go global with the good news about the hope of who Jesus is and what he, the new life he comes to offer. So we want to go global with the gospel, right? And go global in kind of two senses. Number one, we want to be committed to see the gospel go all the way to the ends of the earth. And so this would be our commitment to invest in our global partners as they endeavor to do that across the globe. But I think what it also means is going global looks like reaching people in our own community, the concern that we have for our neighborhoods, for our community, and this surrounding region. And so that would be our commitment to invest in local partnerships as well. So again, hopefully you can see the heartbeat that we have that lies behind this. Uh, but for as much as I think the heartbeat here is reflected in the statement that we read together, I think actually more so this statement does something to speak more clearly and more vividly about our strategy for outreach. So it communicates the heart, but more specifically, it communicates the strategy for outreach. And what is strategy? Well, strategy is nothing more than the plans that we want to put in place to flesh out the heartbeat. How are we going to get the great heart that we have to tell the story and the message of Jesus across the globe and in our community? How are we going to do that? Well, we believe that this is a statement of strategy. And so uh, it's interesting to me, as I went back to this to kind of refresh my own memory as to what the heck we're talking about when we talk about outreach strategy this week, um, I was really struck, again, by this statement. I've read it many times before, but I was struck in particular this past week uh, by the dead horse-beating repetition of some of the language and phrases that you see in this strategy statement that I think reveals just what it is that our strategy is at Medina East to do this. And so maybe you can see this. Uh, what is, maybe I'll just ask you rhetorically, as you read this, as you take this in, what is like one word or maybe one concept or like one idea that you feel is represented by this statement? What is that? 
And so uh, if you're like me, this is what you started to think. I'll put a couple of these phrases up here. What's our strategy? Well, we actively seek ministry audience participation. Partnerships, right? So we work to maximize the impact of God's kingdom through strategic partners, all right? We do this through, we cannot go it alone, which requires a partner, right? We do this with diverse organizations and churches. We exist not for ourselves. We come alongside who? Partners, right? And this campaign, the 10% is going to strengthen our local or our global and local partnerships. And so again, I think you can see very clearly that we believe very strongly that God's heart, the way, the strategy to get the message of Jesus out to people who need it, that God's strategy is to do this by means of or through the idea of partnership, of partnership. And here's the thing, here's what you need to know. Uh, We do not believe for a second that the idea of partnership is born out of our own human ingenuity or for the sake of efficiency. We do not believe for a second that this idea of partnership is just us being clever or exercising some entrepreneurial prowess that we have to get the thing out there. Actually, we very resolutely and most passionately believe that partnerships are not our idea. They're not our idea. They're actually Jesus's own idea. We believe that partnerships are Jesus's own blueprint as the risen king of the universe who has placed churches in the world like ours to carry the message of his hope and the gospel to the known world. We believe that very strongly. Partnerships are not our idea. Partnerships are God's idea. They're God's idea. Now, even as I say that, some of you are sitting here thinking you're nodding your head. You're like, yeah, I totally agree with that. Partnerships are God's idea. Uh, Others of us might be a little hesitant or suspicious, maybe, potentially. That would be me if I were sitting in here today and if I was newer to the whole idea. And so you might be saying, well, exactly what justifies you to say that partnerships are God's idea and not yours? Uh, what's, what's, it, what's for me to say that uh, you don't just believe that Pastor, or, uh, Jesus showed up to Pastor Tony in a vision one day and said, thou shalt lead thine church into partnerships on my behalf. So what is the basis? What is the basis for the claim that we believe partnerships are God's idea? Well, truth be told, kind of in response to that hypothetical question, I would say this, that actually if you open up the Bible, literally open it up anywhere and put your finger down, which I don't recommend as a good Bible reading practice, but if you did that and you were to sort of ingest or take in the concepts and the context and the message, even though maybe partnership wouldn't be reflected in terminology in that spot in scripture, you would actually find that underneath almost every aspect, every morsel, every passage is the notion of God's desire to partner with us and God's desire for us to partner, partner with other God, other, others of God's people to get the message of his hope out. We think you could see this everywhere in the Bible. As a matter of fact, if you scroll all the way back to Genesis 1, you can't get out of the first page of the Bible without encountering the idea of partnership. The first page of the Bible speaks of a creative God who creates everything in the universe and it's the climax or the apex of his creation. He creates human beings who the Bible says is made in his image. And it's this idea of human beings have this unique role and responsibility. They have the capacity to make visible the invisible character and attributes of the creator God. And that all of this is cast in the framework and the language of us as human beings being designed to be God's partners, God's partners. And again, we can go all the way through the Bible from start to finish, and you can see this strategy of God operative. 
But while we could go all the way through the Bible, which none of us wants to do here this morning, I do believe that there is actually one particular passage, one particular passage. Oh, guys, I'm so jacked up about this. There's one particular passage that I believe most cogently and explicitly describes the nature of God's desire for us to partner with his people to reach the world for Christ. One passage. And not only am I so jacked up about this passage being a justification or a legitimization of our strategy for outreach, I'm actually, I actually think this passage has the very real potential for all of us this morning to reinvent and reinvigorate and redefine some of our assumptions about just what a partnership is. Can you guys tell I'm really jacked up about this? I hope so, because I am, okay? So this is the passage, Philippians 1, Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Philippians 1, 3 through 7. So if you brought your Bibles with you here this morning, I want to invite you to begin making your way out to this passage. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, that's completely okay. There are some Bibles under the seats in front of you, and uh, this passage can be found on page 950 in those Bibles under the seats in front of you. And lastly, if you don't have a Bible to call your very own, we just want you to take one of those Bibles home with you. It's our gift to you. All right, so here we go. We got Philippians 1, chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. The Apostle Paul is writing to a church he established and planted, a group of Christ followers that he planted in the ancient city of Philippi. And so this is what Paul says in the introduction, sort of the introductory remarks in this letter to them. He says, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your, say it with me, partnership, right, in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, Paul says, that he who began a good work in you, I love this, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share, this is also the language of partnership, share, all of you share with me in God's, in God's grace with all right, so as we begin to orient ourselves around what Paul is doing in this introduction, I actually think that the first order of business for all of us is to deal with the fact that it feels like we've all just stumbled on a mushy, gushy, romantic love letter that Paul writes to this church, right? I mean, think about it. If we read this, if we're honest, this thing is dripping with romantic goo, Blech, right? And think about it. If you were to sing the first couple verses of this passage, it could totally pass for a modern day love song, couldn't it? Which is, we should try it. We should try that. So, I thank my God every time I remember you, girl. In all of my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy, baby. Right? This, this totally passes for a modern day love song, doesn't it? And think about the language of comprehensiveness that exists here, of totality, the extremes that Paul uses. What does he say? I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, by the way, the you here is plural, so in English it should be you all. So it's in all my prayers for all of you all, I always pray with joy. And so this is, this always and forever, this everything, this all, this is exactly how love songs go in our modern culture, isn't it? 
It's also the stuff that we say to, to, to another person that, that we feel very affectionate and sentimental toward, right? What is the phrasing that we use? Well, you're mine forever and always. Oh, girl, you are my everything. You have all of me. Oh, don't, don't listen to that song. That is not a great song, okay? But if you see this, right, it's like Whitney Houston just video bombed Paul when he wrote this. And you can hear her singing, and I will always love you. Check this out, right? You see it now. Yeah. So you all clearly don't know what talent is. But thank you for the applause anyway. Thank you for the applause anyway. But look at this. Like, oh, this, this to me, the worst of it comes later. Come on, Paul. I have you in my heart. This is like flower and rainbow puking unicorns here. Like, have you in my heart? Come on, really? I just want to go, yuck, yuck. This is way too sentimental. And my wife and I have a great relationship, by the way. So, so. I think we have to ask the question, it begs the question, because most of all of Paul's letters that are found in the New Testament don't run like this. Usually it's like, Paul, hey, I love you guys, but you suck. Like, you need to do a lot of things better, but this one's totally different. What gives? What's so different about this? Does Paul just wish to make the uh, prudish among us uber uncomfortable or to feel awkward? Or is something else going on here behind the scenes? Well, I think, I think, guys, that the affection, the bleeding heart affection and feeling that Paul displays here for this group of Christ followers in Philippi makes so much more sense when you realize that this church in Philippi was the only church that Paul planted, the only church to have from the very first all the way to Paul being in prison as he writes this letter, to support him financially and materially as Paul engaged in the ministry and the mission of spreading the hope of Jesus across the known Roman world, the world of his day. They were the only church to have continued to generously give him gifts of financial and material support. They sustained this guy as he preached the gospel time and time again. And you're like, well, how do you know that? Well, I think you can see shades of it throughout this letter, but it's no more clear than at the very end when Paul is giving his ending salutations. He says, yet, Philippians, it was good of you all to share partnership language in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, meaning the first time we got connected together in relationship because of Jesus, from that very first time of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out, when I left you for the first time for Macedonia, not one church, not one church, shared with me in what, he says? The matter of giving and receiving. This phrasing, giving and receiving, would have pointed to a very common thing in the ancient world. The idea is the giving would be a financial gift that was given from a benefactor to a beneficiary. And the expectation in those commercial relationships was the funding of the benefactor given to the beneficiary. That person would expect a kind of return on investment for that. And they would receive back the blessing and the goodness of the thing that their monetary and contribution infused and propelled. 
And so part of the reason for Paul writing the letter to the Philippians in the first place is to give back and let them know just what the gospel is doing through his ministry as a result of their financial and material support of his. He says, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except only you, only you. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid. And check this out, not just once, more than once. You sent me aid more than once when I was in need. And so guys, I think a big part of the reason why Paul is gushing with gratitude over this church is because he has been a tangible beneficiary of their acts of generosity, that giving and receiving relationship. They have shared the weight of responsibility to further the mission together. Paul is busy preaching the name of Jesus in lands abroad. And the Philippian church is footing the bill. They're footing the bill. Now, what's interesting is that these kinds of relationships, these, again, patron-client or benefactor-beneficiary kind of relationships would have been super common in the ancient world. They would have been common in the social and commercial spheres of the ancient world, And what's interesting, if you do any kind of exploration, you would discover that the word partnership was the term that you would typically use to describe this kind of relationship of a benefactor and a beneficiary of a patron and a client. And you can actually see the framework of this kind of patron-client relationship between Paul and the Philippian church. You can see it all the way back again in chapter one as he gushes about this partnership in the gospel. And as he moves on into verse six, He says, hey, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, Paul says, because of your financial aid and contribution, I can be confident of something. He says, being confident of this, that he, he's referring to God here, that he who began a good work in, this is also plural, you all, which would be to say that the good work is done in their midst or amongst them as a result of them rallying together to something. He who began a good work in you all amidst you all, is going to carry it all the way to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Now look at this. The good work is not most immediately or most fundamentally about their individual salvation or how they get saved. First and foremost, the good work is about the mission. The good work of Paul in communicating the gospel across the known world. And he says that it's God that in the midst of you all and your financial contribution is be, has begun this good work of spreading his gospel about Jesus. And God himself is going to own the process of bringing that up to its fullest measure all the way until the return of Christ, all the way until the day of Christ Jesus. God himself is going to produce the maximum amount of fruit all the way up to when Christ returns. And if you think about this, guys, the maximum amount of fruit of the Philippians and cash infusion for Paul's ministry, when Paul preaches the gospel across the globe, you can trace that all the way down through history. And the good work that God started in and amongst the Philippian church in that has come and situated itself in our laps here today. We are the beneficiaries of the Philippians' generosity, their generosity. Now, I think we have to say, before we move forward in this passage, we should pause and connect some dots a little bit. 
See, part of the heartbeat that we have and the commitment to give 10% of all here we go commitments away to local and global partners finds its foundation right here in these ideas, right here in these verses. You see, because like us, like us, the Philippians had a concern to spread the message of Jesus across the globe. They had that concern, just like we do. But also like us, the Philippians also knew that they couldn't go everywhere and they couldn't do everything. The Philippians knew that the sphere of their capacity to act in no way eclipsed the sphere of the need that they saw of that great need. And so what was the solution? Well, the solution was partnership and specifically of a financial variety. The church would give support to Paul and by doing so, they would catalyze or infuse this or carry on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. They would fuel the Holy Spirit's work by generously supporting a trustworthy person like the Apostle Paul. And so likewise, our commitment to 10% of dollars given away for here we go is not just about our ingenuity. It is about this. It's about picking up the fruit-producing, kingdom-expanding work of Jesus in the early church and modeling and being faithful to those patterns in God's story right here, right now, as we are looking to faithfully live that out. And so I would say that given this passage, given this passage, one tangible application for a church is basically this, is that we are to generously give of our money and material possessions to fund missionary work across the globe. That's what we're to do. And we can have every confidence that God will take that good work that he might begin in us. And God is the one that's gonna own that all the way up to completion. So that's one application of it. But we have to ask this question. Is that all there is to this idea of partnership? Is partnership in the Bible and is God's heart and strategy for partnership, is that exclusively just to say like the missionaries do all the good stuff and the church, the local church just exists to foot the bill, right? We're just, we just exist to be a financial investment firm for missionary work abroad. Is that the extent of this? Well, I actually don't think that that is and for multiple reasons, but there is no more glaring reason for my resistance to that idea than the specific word that lies behind both the word partnership and the word share that appear in verse five and verse seven respectively in our English translations. Now notice what I said. There's one Greek word that lies behind both of these terms. One Greek word behind partnership and share. And that Greek word, I think we gotta get our minds wrapped around this because this is huge, this is massive. That one Greek word that lies behind it is a Greek word that's pronounced koinonia, koinonia. You know you wanna say it, you do. Say koinonia, koinonia, all right. So what's the deal with koinonia and why do our English translators here use two different English words to unpack this same term or the same reality? Well, here's what you need to know about koinonia. Koinonia is more of like an umbrella term that encompasses a lot of complementary concepts that can fit within that umbrella. And one of those concepts is absolutely, you would use the word koinonia to describe a financial partnership of commerce. You could do that. But koinonia is so much more rich and so much more diverse. And because it is, it's like multifaceted and manifold, 
Because it is, English translators are forced to like look at the context where the word appears and they're forced to draw out and specify an English word that best matches with the aspect of koinonia that they think the author of scripture is talking about in that section. But here's the deal. It's so much richer and more multifaceted than that. And we could spend literally an entire series just unpacking the significance of this word. But for our sake today, I want to just uh, reveal to you uh, one author or one theologian's definition of koinonia. Check this out. This guy says, koinonia is a meaningful connection. Now, I didn't highlight this word, but I probably should have. It's a meaningful connection that's not just known or you don't just, you're not just aware about it. It's a meaningful connection that's experienced. You have to experience this thing. So it's a meaningful connection that's experienced by those who, check this out, this is so good, who share a common source of life. In other words, this group of people who are koinoneeing at the deepest, like more emotionally spiritual level, they all sense and understand and experience that they are drawing life together from a single source. This is to say that if there was an onlooker or an outsider that would look at this group of people, they would be like, dude, what water are you guys drinking? Like, do you got like HGH, human growth hormone? Because what, is lo- what I'm looking at outwardly is so radically different from what I know. And there's this notion of koinonia being this, this drawing of life from the same source, that we are participating together in a certain way of life and a lifestyle that is unknown to those outside. It's a meaningful connection that's experienced by those who share a common source of life, but they also, in their sharing of this life, find a deep sense of meaning now and purpose for their life and their life together, in precisely in their togetherness. I love this. We should start to be thinking about the ideas of family here. In the same way that siblings in a family feel a sense of togetherness by virtue of them drawing their life from the same source, the same sets of parents, in the same way that a family feels that, koinonia is this idea of sensing the deep common source of life and finding a togetherness that is otherworldly as a result of that. And then finally, that togetherness that's from their drawing of the same source allows them to discover a unified motivation. They are propelled to do something and act together. A unified motivation for pursuing a singular goal because they see themselves as co-laborers on a mission together. So again, this might still be a little fuzzy for some of us. And as I was trying to really think about the best way to describe koinonia in the time that we have, I actually couldn't help but think about an interaction that I had with my father-in-law this past Thanksgiving. So my father-in-law are good. You know, for all you guys out there that you think your father-in-laws don't like you, look, I'm good. Okay, so I love my father-in-law. This guy is such a gentle, amazing man. Um, And one of the things that I love about my father-in-law the most is he has this deep, meaningful sense of family tradition. And not only does he really, like his heart beat and pulsate for family tradition, he also has an ardent desire to pass those family traditions on to the next generation, much like what we're looking at with kids and students in Here We Go. And this is one of the reasons, again, that I love this guy. I value him. I look up to him. I respect him a lot precisely because I see how, what, what a care and a concern he has to pass on this kind of life onto, or lifestyle onto future generations. 
Now, uh, the rest of my family maybe doesn't share my enthusiasm or his, because typically uh, my father-in-law, Ron's intrusions of tradition, when he tries to rally the family together before eating, he'll be like, I want to get you all around here for a second, just talk for a few minutes about why we're here. And the rest of the family is just like, oh gosh, Ron, shut up so we can eat already. Jeez, come on. And my family's really functional. We're, we're really good. We're, we're awesome. So um, this actually, past Thanksgiving, it began like all the other Thanksgivings and all the other family gatherings with him. So I was sitting on the lazy boy chair watching football, and that's how they all begin. And uh, my father-in-law arrives, and since he is the clan patriarch, he arrives with his straight out of 1972 electric turkey carver, right? Like this, I think the Bee Gees used this actually to slice their own turkeys. So he arrives, and I'm thinking, this is going exactly the way it normally does. The bird's gonna come out of the oven, Ron's gonna march in there, he's gonna slice the turkey, and then he's gonna call us all together for a 10-minute diatribe about what family is. So I'm like, this is going great. But it was right there when the turkey came out of the oven that convention completely ended on my Thanksgiving this past year. So again, my father-in-law is a kind man. He's not directive or assertive. But what he proceeded to do is not plug in his knife and go to town. He proceeded to walk over to me. He planted himself in between me and the TV. He looked me right in the eye and he pointed at me. He said, you're coming with me. And I was like, yes, sir. (laughs) And so I followed him into the kitchen. And guys, for the next 15 minutes, my father-in-law began to pour all his wisdom all his turkey carving prowess and know-how, all his experience, all his knowledge, and he began to just pour that into me. And I gotta tell you, I was not very good at it at first, but over time, because of his generous tutelage, over time, man, I start, my hands started to like glide over the ripened skin of that dead bird with ease and elegance. It was a thing, it was a sight to behold. And then, when Ron and I were done carving the turkey together, When we were done, side by side with him, united in our pursuit, we served these artfully sliced pieces of meat to our family. It was a glorious sight to behold. Now, why do I tell you that story? What does it have to do with Koinonia? Here's what it has to do with Koinonia. For 41 years, I had a paradigm about what it meant to participate in the Thanksgiving meal with the family. Now, granted, I've only been hosting um, our Thanksgiving gatherings at my house for 10 years, and I've only known my father-in-law, Ron, for for about 20 or 22. But nevertheless, for 41 years, I had this paradigm wired. The role that the dad played was to carve the turkey so that I could get on with eating the dang meal and place myself on the same easy chair that I always occupied watching the Detroit Lions lose their Thanksgiving Day game. For 41 years, this existed. 41 years. Because my mentality was, turkey cutting is not my job. It's his. That's what he does. My job, at least for the last 10 years since I've been hosting Thanksgiving, is to buy the turkey. I buy the bird. My job is to finance the meal. But after 41 years of this kind of attitude, Guys, it only took me about 15 minutes to have that perspective completely undone. It completely unraveled. Because I realized, I think, in that moment that a koinonia partnership in Thanksgiving isn't just about me throwing money at the cause. That's not only what that is. Instead, it's about an active partnership. It's a deep, meaningful connection. It's 
It's participating and sharing in the labor of my father-in-law to pull off this meal for my family. And yes, indeed, my role in the Thanksgiving feast continues to be my infusion of cash to buy the bird. But now I have something more than that. I also realize that it's my role to partner with my father-in-law side by side for as many years as we have Thanksgiving left, to participate side by side with him in the mission to bring the blessing and the goodness of the meal to everyone in attendance. We shared something in common. We were unified in our togetherness and it mobilized us for a single mission together. And so likewise, what made the Philippian church a partner in ministry with Paul was not just about their financial donation. Do you see this? The donation served something greater to testify to a deeper reality. The donations were a symbol of something much greater, deeper, and more penetrating. You see, the donations were reflective of what they most shared in common, which was the transforming, new life-generating power of the risen Lord Jesus that coursed through their life together. That's what they shared. And because they all participated now in the new life of Christ together, it means they also shared the common mission, the common goal to make his name known everywhere, abroad, but also at home. Because as Paul was preaching Jesus across the globe, don't miss this, the Philippian church recognized that they were to participate and engage in that same mission right in the middle of the city of Philippi, right there. And I think this is abundantly clear with the word koinonia, but it's also made even more vivid by the specific grammar that Paul uses, especially in verse seven of chapter one. Now, the NIV, which is what we normally read here, uh, obscures this a little bit. So I just wanna show you the ESV translation that I think highlights this distinction. It's a careful, subtle little thing, but it makes a massive difference. In verse seven, Paul says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all sharers, partners, partakers. This is koinonia. You're all koinoniaing with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Now, first and foremost, just note that what the Philippian church and Paul most connect with, most partake in, is not an act but it's grace. They partake and participate in the grace of God together. The grace of God is this predisposition, this friendly disposition of God that he desires what is best and what is good for us as human beings. And he desires this and wants this so much that he would be motivated by that sentiment to act in a concrete way on our behalf to give us a gift which is none more supreme than the gift of his unique, one-of-a-kind son, Jesus, that he gave to die and rise for us. And Paul says, what's coursing underneath us, what we koinonia, is God's very grace. And then Paul says that grace manifests itself in two ways. Look at this. It manifests itself. Their experience of this grace shows up both in, he says, now careful, my imprisonment, my imprisonment, Paul writes this from prison. 
He says, both in my imprisonment, and then he says, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Notice, not my imprisonment and my defense and confirmation of the gospel, no. He says, God's grace is showing up in my imprisonment because of your cash gifts and your support. But grace is also showing up in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Let me see if I can put it to you this way. A lot of times we're tempted to read this verse like this. It's that Paul is here, likely in Rome, in prison. He's in imprisonment. And the Philippians are here in Philippi. And so Paul is saying that he experiences God's grace because he's in prison. And when he gets the cash gift or the support or food or whatever that the Philippians send, when they give that to him, he can say, I'm experiencing tangibly the grace of God as a result of your gift. I'm in prison, but I'm experiencing this thing because of what you're doing. But then it's easy for us to go on and say, that also means that the Philippians were only supposed to give cash to Paul in his imprisonment, and that it was Paul's responsibility alone to defend and confirm the gospel. That it was Paul's responsibility alone to defend like a witness would in a courtroom stand who is simply saying, I'm testifying to what I know to be true about Jesus. He's defending it there and that he's confirming it there, which would be to say like, and what I know about Jesus is available to you. I wanna confirm that it's available to you and accessible by faith. And so we might easily think that the only responsibility of the Philippian church in this missionary effort, in this koinonia, is to give the gift. But I think in this subtle nuance, Paul says it's my imprisonment, but he says the defense and confirmation of the gospel. I think we're supposed to look at it this way. Paul's in prison in Rome. The Philippians are in Philippi. Paul experiences a tangible way that he experiences the grace of God in his ministry and the good work that he's doing is because the Philippians have been supportive. But the defense and confirmation would be to say that this is something that encases both contexts, both groups, in both environments. This is to say that the defense and the confirmation of the gospel is a shared responsibility. And that this is the beating heart of biblical partnership. Paul abroad declaring the message of Jesus to anyone he comes in contact with. The Philippian church as they live out their discipleship and allegiance to Jesus in Philippi, are doing the same thing. And this, man, this is the heart. This is the koinonia heart of biblical partnership. And so, if that's the heartbeat, right, the strategy then I, I think becomes clearly evident for us as a church, for us at the Medina East campus. Like the Philippians, we will partner financially with local and global organizations because that is how we model the gospel. That is how our partners can come to experience the grace of God that is theirs because of what they are doing on Jesus' behalf. It's a very tangible way. This is to say that God in his grace gave the gift of Jesus to us. Now we as a church of Jesus, compelled by that grace, we get to, we get to do this. We get to express our participation in this new life through financial and material support as conduits of that same grace to our partners. But you have to see that it doesn't end there. As fellow partakers of the life of Jesus, we are to also live out our partnership in the gospel by actively making Jesus known right here in our neighborhoods, around the street, 
in our communities, in this region. This is our own defense and confirmation of the gospel. This is who Jesus is. And he is for you. And he loves you. And God has moved heaven and earth to rescue you. And I'm his ambassador. This is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. That we would give our own selves and our lives to those in our sphere of life to help them see that God is for them and that Jesus has died precisely to bring them into the same common life that pulsates in us as his followers. And so, as we begin to close down a little bit, as we begin to take a little bit of these big concepts, these theological ideas, and start to press them down. I'm going to invite the band up. And some of us might be asking, okay, this is good. We, we support, we financially support, we materially support, but we also live out the gospel in our own community and world. What are some maybe practical considerations or ways that we can, as a church, begin to increasingly walk in some of these patterns and habits that are motivated out of these ideas that we've explored and unpacked today? And I would just say that there are a million and one different ways that the Holy Spirit might be leading individuals in this room to move on. But let me just say, for the sake of our community life together, I just have a couple suggestions. Practical considerations. Number one is that we can continue, or maybe for you it would be for, for the first time, we could actively support our partner organizations. We could actively support them for the gospel to be made known to the ends of the earth. And how would we do that? Well, I think Pastor Steve and his Give It Away team have come up with an amazing, just like succinct way of describing how we should be thinking when we consider supporting those organizations. He and his team have just basically said, you can think about this, think like this, pray, give, go. Pray, give, go. Pray, give, go. And so as we think about partner organizations, both locally and globally, we can pray for our partners. We can pray for our partners. And maybe this doesn't just look like a Hail Mary kind of, Jesus, would you just please bless all the partners that are connected to Maddie's campus, amen. But maybe it looks and involves like us taking opportunity to go to websites like herewegomedina.com to explore who our partners are, to get to know them, to hear their story, to click on the link to go out to their website so that we, as the people of God, can hear the challenges and the hindrances and the things that they're up against so we can pray for them but we can also celebrate with them to hear the stories about people who are coming to know the hope of Jesus as a result of their efforts. And so maybe I would just challenge every one of us this week. In the time you spend with Jesus every day, what if we all just took five minutes of that time? Five minutes. What if we use that time to go out and connect in a heartbeat, that koinonia reality with our partners and what if we just decided to pray for their needs? Can you imagine what the God who takes a good work and brings it to completion could do simply by us connecting in heartbeat with our local and global partners and praying for them fervently? Can you imagine what God would do? We can pray for our partners. We can also give generously to our partners. And that is part of, here we go, that 10%. But what if God might be stirring some of us to bypass the middleman? to go directly to the partner, to be moved by God's grace and his Holy Spirit, to give, to give directly to them. What would that look like? And go, 
Steve and his team, Pastor Steve and his team have done an amazing job of creating opportunities. They're usually about one or two weeks in length where you can join a go team where there's a team of people from our campus that go to our partners and they love and support them and share in the gospel work abroad for a short season. You can pray, we can give, and we can go. And secondly, we can also live as people on mission right here in our community. And it's actually no different, right? How should we be thinking about this? Pray, give, go. Pray, give, go. Pray, give, go. We can pray for ways to get involved. Yes, in Love Medina. Yes, in neighboring. We want to do that as a church to harness all of God's resources in this local body to serve and meet the needs of the community. We wanna do that. But maybe we could begin to pray for ways that we could get our own families involved. How are we gonna live on mission as a family right here in our city where God has placed us? And maybe it looks like talking to your life group leader praying with your life group about further opportunities for your life group to get engaged in the Koinonia partnership and be co-laborers on mission for Christ. We can give of our lives. We don't just have to give cash donations. We can give of our life to disciple other people. This idea of discipleship is something we talk about all the time, but if you don't know what it is, it is essentially as simple as this. It is the decision of a follower of Jesus to pour into the life of another person for the purpose of them following Jesus, for them growing spiritually, and for them to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, to look more like Jesus. And there are many of us here that are hesitant and resistant to the idea of making disciples in that way, but what if the Spirit might be leading you to say, I don't know what I'm doing, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm gonna raise my hand, I'm gonna be faithful, I'm gonna give, I'm just gonna give what I have, I'm gonna give my life, to another person on Jesus' behalf. And then finally go, that we can go serve the needs of others, yes, in our community. Again, love Medina and neighboring is huge. But what if it looked like just something that the Lord laid on my heart this past week as I was preparing? What if it looked like asking the Lord, praying to the Spirit and saying, Jesus, would you, would you open my eyes that when I open my front door, that I would see the people across the street in their need, that I would understand the woman down the road who's a single mom was struggling, that I would identify that there's a person right next door who is hurting and crippled by guilt, fear, and shame. And maybe it's a prayer that you would ask even as we sing here in a moment. Maybe it's a prayer that you would just cry out to God and say, Lord, would you open my eyes? Would you give me opportunities to connect the relationship with the people that are around me so that I can serve them and love them on your behalf and fulfill your mission together? Bottom line, bottom line, we are committed to outreach and our strategy is partnership, koinonia kind of partnership. We believe that this is God's method and we believe that it is something God will use and bring it all the way to completion, all the way unto the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you right now and uh, God, we just wanna say thank you for rescuing us for the gift of your son that we share, we most fundamentally koinonia in the life that he poured out so that it could be poured into us and that we would have new life and have a rebuilt, reconciled, restored relationship with you as the God of the universe. God, thank you that you have reinvigorated the partnership all the way back in Genesis 1, that we can be yours and we can be used by you in powerful ways with what you do in and through us as a result of Jesus and Jesus alone and the spirit that you sent to help us get the job done. And so Father, we come to you right now um, as a church community 
And we just are asking that you would lead us and you would guide us into the things that we firmly believe are a part of your heart, that you love people, that you don't want to see people go to hell. You love all people and you desire all to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's your will, that's your desire. So Jesus, would you help us look to you, be transformed by you, engage in the koinonia fellowship that we have in you and the participation that we have together as your children, as your sons and daughters, God. And would you help us be mobilized and emboldened by that same spirit to go into our world, our community, our neighborhoods, and also to, to help participate and fund the great expanse of the gospel message as that goes across the globe. Jesus, we are just asking that you would lead us in this. Please lead us in this. Inform each of us what our next step is, what we're to do. We just wanna be faithful. And we're asking for your power to do that too. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.